One of the commandments Jesus gave was to do this in remembrance of him, this being the Lord's Supper. And we also remember that the early church gave themselves, devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And so while we devote ourselves to meeting together, we pray, we sing, we read the Bible, we should also devote ourselves to meeting together often and take the Lord's Supper. Tonight is that opportunity at 6.30 as we gather to focus upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as we pass out the elements for communion. We invite you back at 6.30 to take those with us. Now would you turn with me to Psalm 23 as we finish this psalm together, the 23rd Psalm. This last Monday, I was in Ludington, Michigan. This is a little town that my wife grew up in. And my son and I decided to go out and make a little memory. We just wanted to take a walk, enjoy each other, spend time. Uh, And so as we were going out toward the break wall on Lake Michigan, which is sort of like a pier that goes out to an old lighthouse, I noticed that the wind had churned up the waves and the water was breaking over the wall. And so nobody's walking out there. And I said, you know, Nate, I don't think we ought to walk out there. You know, we're going to get soaked. And so he goes, ah, come on, Dad. Go for it. I said, well, I got my camera with me. He goes, well, just, you know, button it up, put my shirt over it. And so I said, all right, let's go for it. So we walked out there and the water was up to our knees as it would go over and then splash. And we got totally soaked. When we got back, of course, they asked us the question, what have you been doing? To which I replied, just making a memory, something we'd never forget. When was the last time you thought about enjoying God? Not worrying about your future, not letting everything overwhelm you, but just enjoying God's care. Uh, Focusing in on the fact that he has sovereign control over your life. Thoughts like, what have I got to worry about? After all, I'm his sheep. Everything's somehow going to be okay because I belong to him. God is a provider. And really, that's what verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 23 speak about. God is our host, our gracious provider. By the way, one of the first names of God in the Bible is God provides. That's a name, Jehovah Jireh or Yahweh Yireh. comes to us in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is about to sacrifice Isaac. The angel stops his hand. A ram is substituted for his life. And God is called Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide a sacrifice. So God comes to provide a sacrificial animal instead of a human life, predictive of the fact that Jesus Christ would be provided for us as a sacrifice for our sins. But there's more to the Christian life than just God providing for us salvation. That's enough. That's a lot. But there's much, much more. And Paul the Apostle speaks of this much, much more in Romans 8.32 when he says this, If God did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he then not with him graciously give us all things? God provided his son for salvation. God will provide whatever we need to sustain us in this life. Yet, so many Christians that I know never fully relax in that. 
never rest in the palm of God's grace, are always restless and always discontented, and never really enjoy what these two verses speak about. It reminds me of the story of the handsome prince and the simple maiden. It goes like this. There was a handsome prince who fell in love with a simple maiden. She wasn't very attractive, and she didn't trust his love. How could you love me, she asked. I'm not beautiful, I'm not rich, and I'm not royalty. Well, I just love you, he would say. He asked her to marry him. She still didn't trust his love, but she agreed. Okay, I will marry you. I will clean your house, I will prepare your meals, and I will bear your children. But I don't want to marry you just for what you'll do for me, he said. I want to marry you because I love you. Well, they got married, and so she cleaned his house and fixed his meals and bore his children. And he loved her. But she left him. She told a friend she didn't think he loved her anymore. Never able to just believe he loves me for who I am. Never secure in that kind of provision. Well, Psalm 23 is a very short psalm, but a very comprehensive poetic photograph of God's love, God's mercy, God's kindness. It's sort of a a list of benefits. These are the advantages, says David. When you make the Lord your shepherd, when you follow him, These are all of the benefits that you'll receive. Not that we follow God just for benefits. Not that our relationship with God is so selfish and so narcissistic that we just do it so we can get fulfilled. But there is a time and an appropriate place to celebrate what it is to follow him, to celebrate his goodness, his provision, his kindness, his benefits. And so this psalm does that especially these two verses. Let's read the whole psalm. It's only six verses. won't take us long for context. And then we'll focus in on those last two. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, you probably have noticed that there's a change at this verse. Verse 5, there's a change of metaphor He begins the verse, or excuse me, the psalm, by saying, The Lord is my shepherd. The change here is, The Lord is my host. It's a picture of hospitality, provision being shown. It's the hospitality of a host given to a guest who would come over to his house. You spread out a table, you anoint my head with oil, my cup at the meal runs over. These are benefits of a host. And so if you want to look at all of the psalm together, you might say verse 1 and 2 speaks of the Lord is my shepherd. Verse 3 and 4, the Lord is my navigator leading me through valleys. Verse 5 and 6, the Lord is my host providing what I need. Or if you want to look at the psalm in terms of settings, verse 1 and 2, the setting is the field where the shepherd has his sheep. 
verse 3 and 4, the setting is the valley. We go through the tough times in life. And then verse 5 and 6, the banqueting table is the setting. All of this speaks of God providing for us. And I've sort of divided up these two verses in two sections. The earthly provision and the eternal provision. Now the bulk of it is the earthly provision because that's where we live now. But the last, very last part of it, the last phrase, the last half of verse 6 is the eternal provision. Let's look then at verse 5 and kind of take it phrase by phrase. We notice there's five ways God provides for us, as David mentions in this psalm. There's an earthly provision. God provides definitely. He says, you prepare a table for me. Now that's a word picture of provision. God will provide my needs. This I know definitely. You, O Lord, are the one who spreads out that table for me. You prepare a table for me. For us to really understand this section, we have to understand Middle East hospitality. Hospitality in the Middle East is unlike any other place in the world. Somebody comes to our house, we say, Hey man, make yourself at home. We're really casual about it. Make yourself at home. Not in the Middle East. The host will go out of his way and do everything he can to make sure that you feel at home. More than that, the host will do everything he can to make sure you feel like you're treated as someone special, like royalty. Example, I was in Israel this last May. A few of us together were filming. And uh, we were in Nazareth and wanted to get some footage of the city. So we go go up a street, pull into a little area that's basically a guy's driveway. He wasn't home. We set up the camera. We take pictures of Nazareth, do the narration. Right in the middle of our narration, he pulls up in his car, gets out, says, first thing he says, can I get you some water, some soda? Goes into his house before we say yes or no, brings ice cold water, cokes, puts him in glasses, says, my name is Tony, goes right into the house, makes a pot of Turkish coffee, and as soon as we're done shooting, he says, coffee's ready, come on in. Didn't know us from Adam, treated us like we were long-lost relatives and just shared in his home and in his family. In ancient times, if you were to go into somebody's tent or their house for a supper, there was sort of a ritual that would be followed. You would enter, and you would be greeted, first of all, with a kiss on both sides of your face. After the kiss, the servant would come and bend down and take off your sandals because you've just walked through the dusty streets and your feet are pretty gnarly at that point. The servant would then wash your feet, make sure they're clean for the meal. Then you would be anointed with oil. They would rub a, a scented olive oil on your face. It would smell beautiful and give an aroma to the house and to yourself. And then you would be given a glass of wine mixed with honey just to refresh you from the trip. Then the host would spread out a rug. And when that rug is spread out in the room, the implements of the meal and the food would be brought and you would sit down or recline and enjoy the hospitality. And so the Moffat translation of the Old Testament translates this verse this way. You are my host spreading before me a feast. That's the idea. And that's the idea captured in the Song of Solomon, which says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me is love. 
So what a beautiful picture. God will definitely take care of my needs. He'll provide, David is saying. Think for a moment what it cost God to make you his sheep. Think of the price he paid. Think how expensive it was to send his own son to suffer, to die, to shed his blood, just so that after that act, God could say, you are now my sheep, and I'm going to take care of you. Now, it only makes sense, does it not, that if God would go to that extent to buy us and make us his kids, that he would take care of the rest of our lives. There's probably no better place to examine that a little more fully than in Matthew chapter 6. So I'd like you to turn to Matthew 6 with me, and let's read together the words of Jesus Christ as he talks about God providing for us and our attitude toward it. Matthew chapter 6 is the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the most familiar portions is chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? A cubit is 18 inches. Which of you, by worrying, could add a little more to his height? You're going to worry because you're short? It's not going to help. It's not going to add a day to your life. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." Now, Jesus is not simplistically singing a song, Don't worry, be happy. (laughs) Rather, he is giving us some very concrete, logical and spiritual reasons why we should not worry when God has promised to provide. Notice three times Jesus gives a commandment. He says, therefore, do not worry. That is a commandment, not a suggestion. In fact, in Greek... It is stop worrying. It's to stop an action you've already started. As if to say, I know you're already worrying. Stop it. Three times. He does it in verse 25. He says it in verse 31. And in verse 34, do not worry. Twice in that section is a question. Why do you worry? Three times he says, don't do it. Twice he says, why do you do it? You know why? Because worrying is an insult to the promise of God's provision. When we worry, we're basically saying, you're not a very good host, God. 
When David said, he is a good host, he will spread out his provision before me. God will definitely provide. My son calls people like this worry warts. And uh, there are some people, if, if worrying were an art, they would be Picasso. They have refined it. They're pros at it. They could give lessons on worry. They worry about everything. Whatever happens, it's the worst is going to happen. Get up in the morning, leave the house, and they worry. Will I get robbed? Will the house burn down? As they go to work, will I get a flat tire on the way to work? If I change the flat tire, will I be abducted? They get to work and somebody says something vague to them or gives them a strange look and they think, what do they mean by that? (laughs) Two people laugh down the hall. Immediately he thinks, they're laughing at me. Everybody hates me. They make a decision and they worry, did I make the right decision? They see their children. They worry, will they ever grow up to be adults? Will they make it? Jesus says, don't worry. Now, our word, worry, comes from a German word, wurgen, or as they would say, wurgen. Wurgen is a harsh-sounding word. You know what it means? To choke. To choke. To strangle. It sort of sounds like wurgen. The Greek word for worry is to rip or to shred into pieces. What a description of what worry does to you mentally. Strangulate you mentally. It, it rips you apart mentally. It chokes life and joy from your life. Don't worry, said Jesus. Why? He said, well, because your master is your father. Now, that's the point. He says, look at the birds. That's one of his examples. Look at the birds. When is the last time you saw a bird worry? Ever see a bird out there worrying? Ever see him with his little claws on his beak? Man, where's the next payment for the nest going to come? Will I get another worm? They sing, don't they? We wake up to them in the morning. They're not worrying, they're singing. Now here's Jesus' point. God is their maker, but He's your Father. He repeats that. Your Heavenly Father, not theirs. He doesn't say it's their Heavenly Father. He's not. He's just their Creator. He's given them a biosphere full of provision. If God who did that for them is your father, why are you worrying? It won't help. There's no need. God will definitely provide. Reminds me of that little poem I've loved. Said the robin to the sparrow, Friend, I'd surely like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more value are you than them? So that's really David's point. God will provide definitely. Let's go back then to Psalm 23, verse 5. He provides definitely. Secondly, he provides protectively. For David says that he will spread out this table in the presence of my enemies. Now maybe you'd say, well, Skip, i got to tell you, I don't have any enemies. Well, you should. And I bet you do, if you define it right. I think you can tell a lot about a person by his friends and his enemies. There's some people, not everybody likes you. But I hope they're the right kind. 
And by the way, the word enemy in Webster's Dictionary is defined as simply an antagonist. Now, if you broaden out the meaning to somebody who antagonizes you, you're probably thinking, hey, i got a lot of enemies. David had enemies. David, who loved God and was the king, had enemies. I can think of a few. Goliath was one. The Philistines were enemies. The Moabites were enemies. The Amalekites became enemies. Eventually, the Syrians to the north became his enemy. But he also had some enemies that were not so obvious. His father-in-law was his enemy. Now, before you go, well, I can relate to that one. His father-in-law tried to kill him. King Saul was afraid that he would usurp authority of the kingdom. David's own son became his enemy. Absalom turned on him. David's trusted counselor, Ahithophel, became an enemy. Now, we have a problem with this, some of us. We love green pastures. We love still waters. And we can even hang in the valleys because Jesus said he'd be with us. But when God comes along and says, I promise you, you're going to have enemies, that's when we say, hey, now, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for enemies. I'm out of here. And there have been people who have made a profession to follow Jesus thinking, I'm going to have rose petals on my path. That's what they told me. And when the rose petals disappear and there's thorns and rocks and it gets tough and there are enemies, we think, I'm out of here. Jesus said that in a parable. Matthew 13, he said, The one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The moment you said yes to Jesus, you brought some new enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil are your enemies. Now, the devil's always been your enemy, but in a very significant, special sense, now he's your enemy. Before he controlled you, he had you in his grip, you defected and you gave Jesus your life, you made Jesus your shepherd, and you made the enemy, the devil, your enemy. It makes sense, doesn't it? You don't expect hell and all of its minions to give you a standing ovation when you get serious about God. They're not going to go, all right, man, we're for you. We love this decision you've made. They go, oh, really? You're going to follow Jesus? Well, you haven't seen what I can do to you. You don't know what tricks I have up my sleeve, the kind of oppression that I can give to you. And in a very significant sense, you become a target of the devil who is your enemy. And you'll even have other enemies than just him. He uses all sorts of people, even nearest and dearest. Jesus said a man's enemies will even come from his own household. Some of you have experienced that. Some of you are suffering today because you made a decision to follow Jesus and people in your own family and your close friends think you're wigged. You're goofy all of a sudden. You always carry that book with you. You got that goofy smile on your face. You don't say the same garbage we say. What has happened to you? Conversion has happened to you. God's provision has happened to you. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 4, Your former friends are very surprised when you no longer join them in the wicked things they do, and they will say evil things about you. 
This was brought home to me poignantly when I worked at a hospital in Southern California. It was Monday morning, doing my work, and I'm whistling. I'm happy. God's with me. My supervisor finally comes to me with anger and just says, Would you stop whistling? It's Monday. Like, who has a right to be happy at work on Monday? You know, be angry like me. Couldn't handle it. Truth is, you will be hassled, you will be hounded by enemies. The point of the passage is that though you're surrounded by them, God will provide for you in the midst of them and give a testimony to them that God is on your side. He'll provide for you. He'll provide the joy. He'll provide your needs during that time. As Paul the Apostle put it in 1 Corinthians, we are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians. We're struck down, but not destroyed. We're not struck out, still kept. So God will provide definitely. God will provide protectively. Thirdly, we notice in the psalm, he provides graciously. Notice that little phrase, you anoint my head with oil. Remember we said customary treatment for a guest. Comes in, kissed on both sides of his face. Feet are washed. Oil is put on the face. A scented, perfumed olive oil. What does that do? It makes your face shine, number one. Number two, it feels great because it's so hot and dry in the Middle East. It's like a lotion. And third, it makes you smell great. So you are being treated with class, with special honor when you have your head anointed with oil. Remember when Jesus went to Simon the Pharisee's house in the Gospel of Luke? And he's there, and there's a woman during the feast who starts crying on Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair and breaks open this perfume. And the Pharisee's thinking, man, if this guy were really a prophet, he would know that this lady's a sinner. And he starts thinking evil thoughts. Jesus out loud says, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet be customary, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, that would be uh, called for, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Oil then is a symbol of joy due to gracious treatment. Joy because of gracious treatment. God said in Isaiah 61, he said, I will give the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So when David says, Lord, you anoint my head with oil, you know what he's saying? He's saying, God, not only do you provide my necessities, not only do you just give me what I need, but but you do it with class. You do it with grace. You go even beyond it. I feel so honored, so special because of you. Grace, I have discovered, is difficult for many people to handle. The fact that God would just lavish his love and grace upon us, well, I don't deserve that. We feel antsy about receiving it. We can't relax and enjoy it. It's sort of like that simple maid and the handsome prince, not trusting or resting in his love. Let's say you gave me a gift, and the gift was nicely wrapped, and it was in a box with wrapping paper and a bow, And I took it and I opened it in front of you and opened the box and saw the gift. And I said, hey, man, that's a cool gift. Thank you. 
And then I reached in my wallet and said, how much do I owe you? You'd say, it's a gift. Probably you would. Now, some of you might say, well, you owe me ten fifty, But I doubt it. You'd probably say it's a gift. That's the purpose of the gesture. It's a gift. And then let's say I were to go, oh, great. Okay, I understand. Well, tell you what. I'll come over to your house and work it off. Again, you'd say, it's a gift. Okay, great. Thanks. I understand. But uh, I'll go out and get a gift in exchange because you gave me one. Now, at this point, you'd be insulted. I have robbed your joy because I've taken away the idea of grace. That's why we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Not amazing grace, I'll pay you back. (laughs) Wilbur Chapman, one of his favorite illustrations was a man who was converted in one of his meetings and gave a testimony. Here was his testimony. I got off at the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and I said, Hey, mister, can you spare a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I found you. You want a dime? Everything I have is yours. Think of it. He said, I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he had. Do you let God treat you that way? Or do you go, God, I can't accept your grace. It's just too good. Yeah, that's why it's called grace, undeserved favor. It's David's point. God provides definitely, protectively, graciously. Fourthly, God provides abundantly. Listen to how he puts it. My cup runs over. That's descriptive, isn't it? You can picture the guy's glass out there and host comes and pours and just keeps pouring. I got more to spare. Just it dumps out all over. Now, sometimes I will do this as a joke. Somebody will have water. Can I fill your water? <laughs> but I don't think that's David's idea here. It's not like God's playing a joke on me like Skip would. But rather, there's more where this comes from. God is providing abundantly, not just the necessities. God is providing abundantly, overabundant. Now keep in mind, David wrote this, as we said in our first study of Psalm 23, not while he was young, not as a little shepherd in Bethlehem. Scholars believe David wrote this when he was older. He had seen pain, disappointment, discouragement, failure, And yet he still says, my cup runs over. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? After all of the pain and junk that he had seen in his life, he said, oh, Lord, it's more than I can handle. My cup runs over. That's quite a statement. Not all of us can do that. Spurgeon said, part of our trouble is we write our sorrows in marble and our mercies in the sand. True, isn't it? So often we just remember the sorrows. We see the black dot on that big white sheet. Instead of writing our mercies in marble and our sorrows in the sand. Listen to conversations. Listen even to Christian conversations. Listen to how much grumbling and complaining goes on among God's people. Rather than, oh, thank God. He is so good. My cup runs over. I think a lot of people would have to admit, instead of my cup runs over, they'd say, my cup leaketh under. (laughs) My cup is half full or half empty. 
David said, my cup runs over. Truth is, God's treated you pretty good, Christian. Truth is, we don't deserve the least of his mercies. But he gives them anyway. And the truth is, God lavishes his love upon us, and it's so hard for us to receive it. To believe that God really loves us that much. And we're sort of like that maiden, aren't we? Okay, God, I'll work for you. I'll do this. I'll clean your clothes. Okay, great, but I just love you. Nancy Spiegelberg wrote a great little piece that sums it up. And she said, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. If only I'd have known you better. David says, I know him better. My cup runs over. Now let me just add on this point. If your cup is running over, if God has blessed you abundantly, then he's done it that it might be shared. What God has blessed you with, be quick in turn to spill out those blessings to others. Jesus said, give and it shall be given to you. He also said in the temple courts one day, if any man is thirsty, come to me and drink and out of his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. I'll refresh you, but then I'll make you a source of refreshment to others. So God provides definitely, protectively, graciously. He provides abundantly. And then fifthly, he provides unrelentingly. I love this. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David has looked back over his life, said, God, you're a gracious host. And you've provided abundantly. And now as I look to my future in this life on earth, I realize and I declare goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Don't misunderstand. He's not saying your life will be painless, no problems. He he knew better. He wasn't naive. But it's a declaration that goodness and mercy would follow him. Okay, enemies are going to be on my tail. Problems are going to be following me. But so will God's love, God's mercy. They'll follow me. They'll pursue me. Now, if you have a New International Version, it says, surely goodness and love will follow me, right? Mine says goodness and mercy. The Hebrew words are tov v'chesed. Tov means good. Chesed is often translated a lot of different ways. Love, loving kindness. David said, your loving kindness is better than life. The word he used was chesed. And so, the good and the love. But the love, the word chesed, means covenant love. It means that God will act toward me based upon a covenant God has made with me. God will act, I'm sure, in the future in love because God has made a deal, a covenant, a pact. And he will act toward me based upon that pact. That is covenant love. That is the word chesed. So David is standing, making a choice based upon God's character, his track record, the covenant, I got a maid all the days of my life. You know, that's a choice to say that. You're standing at some juncture in your own life. You've looked back. You've had some heartaches. You've had some disappointments. And now you look to your own future. And can you say goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life? It's a choice. Some people make the choice. Some people do not make that choice. Some people are like the worry wart. Some people are not. Some people are like Tigger in Winnie the Pooh. Everything's going to be great. 
Others are like Eeyore. Okay. In Winnie the Pooh. Or another analogy. There are some people that are like thermostats. They change their surroundings. They mark their own course by faith. And they're going to go there. And God is good. And God is merciful. And God is loving. And I know that. No matter what happens. Others are thermometers. They don't change anything. Everything changes them. They're up. They're down. One day, God is good. The next day, God isn't good. He left. Which are you? David said, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I know that sounds simplistic to some. Naive to others. Because there will come disappointments. David knew that. Hardship, pain, struggles. And yet there can still be faith in the midst of that, that God is merciful, kind, and loving. It takes no faith when you're always happy and provided for and there's just abundance. You go, God, it's good. It takes faith when you don't see outwardly yet the provision. You go, God is good. And all the days of my life, His mercy and love will follow me. How can you say that? Only if you believe the shepherd has your best interest at heart. Only if you believe God knows what He's doing. Father knows best. Then you can say that. Corey Ten Boom was in a place where if anybody had the right to complain, she did, I guess. If, if anybody had the right to question the future and God's provision, it would be her, I suppose. She was a Christian who loved God, and during World War II, she hid Jewish people in her house. She was discovered. The Jews were put in concentration camps. So was she. She loved God. She obeyed God, and she suffered in concentration camps at the hand of the Nazis for her faithfulness. She said, oftentimes in despair, a little poem came into her mind. It's like this. Look around and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus and be at rest. She said, that thought kept me through some of the gloomiest times. The Lord is my shepherd. He does spread out this table. I'm looking to Jesus. I'm going to be at rest. He does provide. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's his summary then of God's provision. God provides definitely. God provides protectively. God provides graciously, abundantly, unrelentingly. And then there's one final little phrase of this psalm, and we conclude with this. It's God's eternal provision. One little half a verse. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see a a progression? I'm out there surrounded by my enemies out on the field. I'm in God's tent. He's taking care of me and he's lavishing upon me. But it's not going to just end here. He's going to take me home. He's going to provide and lavish and love. And then one day he's going to say, Hey, why don't you just move in with me forever? Come to my place. Let me spoil you and take care of you in heaven forever. And so David shifts his focus from the earthly to the heavenly when he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's life now beyond the grave. It's perpetual. And Paul said that this is very important. He said, if we only have hope in this life, we're of all men most miserable. Our hope is something that's not, well, I hope everything works out here in life, but you know what? If everything falls apart, I'm going to be in God's house forever. God's good. And at the end of it all... I'll be in the house of the Lord forever. By the way, notice, David calls heaven the house of the Lord. 
I think it's important. For David, the attraction of heaven wasn't just an eternal house. A great, big, luxurious place filled with gold streets after I die. The attraction was it's the Lord's house. The attraction isn't, man, what's going to happen in heaven? Are there going to be gold streets? The fact that God was there. That's the attraction of heaven. God's there. I have people ask me, well, do I get to water ski in heaven? I don't know. I don't. Who cares? Well, I do. I'm water skiing is is neat, and if I like it this much, got to be in heaven. Or well, my daughter's asking me, is her little pet rabbit going to be in heaven? We have these kind of thoughts because we think like human beings think. The greatest attraction in heaven is not what's there, but who's there. God's there. You're going to see Him face to face, and if you don't love Him now, heaven has no attraction. But if you love him, and many of you do, heaven is so attractive because you'll see him face to face, like your home. What makes your home precious? That you have cool little collectibles in it? It's not what's in it, it's who's in it that makes it home and precious. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Dwight L. Moody said, it's not the jeweled walls and the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It's being with God. That's hospitality. You start now, it'll go on forever. That kind of hospitality reminds me of a story from the Middle East. It's a shocking kind of a story. I heard about it when I was in Jordan, and I read the same story when Ruth Graham wrote her little book called Legacy of a Pack Rat. She collected little stories. One was a story heard from the same source of a mission hospital in Jordan. Here's the story. During a heated argument, one Bedouin struck and killed another. Bedouin is the Aramaic name for desert dwellers. Their mode of living closely resembles that of their father Abraham, who also lived in goat hair tents, traveling from place to place out in the desert. The Arab temper, like that of many other cultures, has a low boiling point. Usually it explodes in ear-splitting curses and the flailing of arms. But the young man had killed his friend, now lying dead in the sand, the victim of second-degree murder. Knowing the ancient, inflexible custom of his people, he fled, running across the desert under the cover of darkness, until he came to the sprawling black tent of the tribal chief. Confessing his crime, he asked for protection, and according to Old Testament law, was granted asylum. The old chieftain put his hand on one of the guy ropes of the great tent and swore by Allah and took the young Arab under his protection until the affair could be settled legally. Well, the next day, the young man's pursuers arrived, demanding the murderer be turned over to them. But I have given my word, the old chieftain said. But you don't know who he killed, they said. But I've given my word, he retorted. He killed your son, they said. The old chieftain was visibly shaken. He stood head bowed for quite some time as the accused and the accusers as well as the curious onlookers waited breathlessly. Finally, the old man raised his head. He stood upright and he said, Then he shall become my son. And everything that I have will one day be his. He took my son, then he becomes my son. 
I lost a son, then I'll take a son, and everything I have will one day be his. When news of that story reached the mission hospital, where I have some friends who work, the patients, many of whom are Bedouins, Muslims, said to the missionaries, that's what you've been telling us all along, isn't it? We killed God's son, and now he'll make us his children. God had a son. We killed him, and now he's willing to make us his own. That's hospitality. That's provision. We come running in life through the desert. We, we want solace, and we come into God's tent, and God says, you're, come on in, you're mine, I'll protect you. Yeah, but you killed his son, so did I. Well, then I'll make you my son, my daughter. I'll forgive you of your sins. Let me shepherd your life. Let me control you. And then let me provide for you so that everything I have will one day be yours. So why do you worry? Father, truly, you are gracious. There is none that can compare. There is none that is as loving, as kind, as merciful, as lavish, as filled with grace as you are. I pray, Father, that we as your children would not be like that simple maid, unwilling to receive and accept your kind of provision, but that we would stand by faith and say, God is good and his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life as we anticipate heaven. Then, Father, we pray for those who may have come today who have not received your love, have not received your grace by faith. They've not surrendered their lives over to you. Provide for them the Lamb. Provide salvation. And then as a step, as you draw them to yourself, provide much more, whatever, whatever they need. 